East Meds West. This podcast explores Eastern and Western philosophies of medicine and life, where they collide or collaborate. Introducing your host, Dr. Carolyn Edelston. So, welcome to episode eight of East Meds West. I have a really fascinating guest with me today called Mark Leonard. And the title of this episode is called Social Mindfulness, Hope in a Time of Crisis. Nice to hear the word hope at this time in the world. Um, so welcome, Mark. I want to just introduce you, first of all. And you, I don't think you're an easy person to introduce because you have, well, you have a fascinating bio, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Um, so the first, the first way you describe yourself is a sustainability professional, but also a leading thinker and practitioner of social mindfulness. But your life began in this sort of world, being a fisherman in Cornwall, and then moving from fisherman to um, doing a master in fisheries, and then representing fishermen at a national level. And from then going to waste management enforcement. But what interests me is this is where the story began for our podcast, I think, that you realise that the technical approaches to reducing our footprints in the world must come with social change to be effective. And I think I'm imagining this is where the social mindfulness idea came from. And you also say something quite bold, which is that you believe that mindfulness can save us from ourselves. You played a key role in establishing the Oxford Mindfulness Centre in 2008 to 13. And Mark has developed a programme called Mindfulness-Based Organisation, Organisational Education, MBOE. And this is the first of its kind to be recognised by the British Association of Mindfulness-Based Approaches and the Dutch Mindfulness Teachers Association. He's written a book that goes along with the MBOE programme. And I just want to welcome you, Mark, and I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Oh, well, it's lovely to be here and thank you for inviting me to talk about things. Part of my kind of uh, mission to spread the word, to drive change through this approach. So can I ask you about this wonderful statement where you say social mindfulness can save us from ourselves? Can you tell me more about that and what you sense to be the root of the problem, if there is one problem? Let's just think a little bit about how people understand mindfulness to start with um, and then move on to the idea of of what I mean by combining the word mindfulness with social. Now nearly everybody's heard of the term and they can think and they're probably able to give their ideas about what it is but basically they would think about some kind of probably focusing on the breath meditation practice and calming the mind and it being um, either a therapeutic approach for stress-related mental health problems or a self-help approach to reducing stress. So I think it's fair to say that all people that get to a place where they think it's something that's found, they found it's helped them a great deal start to look at it and begin to realise that that can change the way they think about things and see the world around them, see themselves, etc. And then they want to develop their, uh, you know, they get to a place where they want to develop their understanding of mindfulness to teach it for sort of positive social impact. 
But there's a kind of assumption that just doing that, you know, teaching mindfulness is somehow going to have a social benefit. And that has really come in under a certain amount of criticism and shifting the understanding of how to apply mindfulness in a way that does result in in organizational change or community development or you know shifting the balance of power and economic resources in society to create communities and culture and organizations that can actually do something meaningful about the way we use resources and create a fairer more inclusive society is not has that the work hasn't really been done to bridge that gap so i'm trying to bridge that gap and then saying that this is social mindfulness if we think about mindfulness from a slightly more sort of cognitive or psychological way it has a number of effects that clinical psychologists or cognitive scientists will talk about in terms of things like regulating our emotions. So what they mean mostly is being able to be calm when otherwise we would be stressed. They talk about metacognition, which is just a big word for saying being able to notice your thoughts rather than get sucked into the story and believing it's true. It's about being able to sit, step back and look at those thoughts or see those thoughts as mental events rather than being the reality of who you are or what's going on in the world. And third is something that might be described as openness to experience. And what this really means is becoming more aware of feelings, feelings of discomfort, feelings of anger, feelings of frustration, feelings of anxiety feelings just uncomfortable feelings and conscious of pleasant feelings as well how does it feel when i feel happy and being able to use that as a kind of baseline to go well actually i want to feel that peacefulness and that sense of meaning and purpose rather than feeling disturbed emotions that are actually causing me to react in different ways and behave in ways that might i might regret afterwards so so that's that's mindfulness and it takes some practice because really there's a, there's a number of things that are going on there, but mainly it's about learning to direct one's attention to body-based feelings, becoming more aware of the body as a radar of sensations that is telling us about our emotions. And then because we're more aware of our emotions, we can see how those emotions may be affecting the way we're thinking and acting. That's interesting. So, so that's the first time I've heard a mindfulness practitioner talks so clearly about the body sensations versus trying to quieten the mind. So it does that by default when you're focusing on the body. Would that be fair yeah, to say? that's right. right. You can't have one without the other. And that's pretty good standard stuff within the un cognitive understanding of mindfulness or in clinical psychology, even though it's you know, it's hard to t you know it's hard to describe this for people when they're not aware of it, if you like. Mm. So all of the talk is about reducing stress, reducing self-critical thinking, uh, dealing with the inner critic, rather than actually developing one's sensory awareness of feelings in the body, which we can break down. Which I'm sure you know an awful lot about, Carolyn. The 
body-based physiological systems that are actually you know networks of nerves going through our bodies mm. that are telling us all the time what's going on in our bodies that most of the time we're unconscious about so it's we, trying to make that body-based awareness conscious yeah we're conscious of the big loud shouting but there's all sorts of information being relayed to us isn't there yeah. okay lot of the time we get cut off from those feelings because we get into habits of like slightly being stressed all the time and overthinking and over problem solving so then we just don't sense we, we're not tuned into what our body's actually feeling at those times it just becomes the norm yeah it, it becomes embedded in our nervous system everything that you focus on with your attention or you feed with your attention becomes more of a habit and when we're focusing on the habit of problem solving, self-critical thinking, blame, stories that relate to frustration or getting things done, achieving goals, etc. We're not paying attention, we're not relaxing and paying attention to the feelings of happiness, of peace, of calm, of kindness, of love that are actually part of a, of a body-based experience that's got much less to do with being tangled up in the stories. So are you saying underneath the stress, despite the apparent, all those stories, underneath is still, it's like lifting the cloud, the sunshine is there, there is some happiness and peace to be found? There is, but we have to retrain our nervous system, our attention and our awareness to be able to pick it up because we've got into such habits of not developing those parts of our nervous system and our brain's ability to pick them up because we got trapped in the story mm. our attention has been fully absorbed by the story which most of the time is a response to some subtle level of threat to our sense of self our sense of status what we have what we need to do what's wrong with us etc which are all subtle levels of threat and they come from dare i say politics uh Social conditioning, media, they certainly feed into that, don't they? Yep, social media, all of these things. But it's, it's a slow process. What you could look at historically has got faster and faster over time. Let's put it this way. If we go back to the state that we evolved in, most of the time we would feel safe with a small, intimately connected group of people sharing and sharing what they had the hunter would bring back the food the gatherers would bring back the food and continually living together with the children the children be looking after each other there'd be no fear about being rejected it'd all be about sharing and caring and actually in those societies if you look at them it's taboo to tell other people what to do it's taboo to take a position of authority there are taboo systems that prevent hierarchy from emerging but when we started to live in larger and larger groups we started to need to organize ourselves to protect territory go to war displace enemies protect ourselves from enemies and and those capacities evolved in human beings 
you know, 50, 60,000 years ago, maybe. And as a result, we've conquered the planet and there have been successive waves of human beings that have displaced previous waves of human beings because they're better at organizing themselves, have better technologies and a better system of holding that group together with the idea of a maybe a tribal god or mm. tribal habits that represent, that everybody can recognize as being us rather than them. Right, so this idea of separation of self. Yeah. So we're that's, an isolated unit. So we're beginning to define us and them. And that became more and more part of how, how we organised ourselves in, in society. Different specialisations, uh, property, um, you know, different rights, different responsibilities, different roles that p different classes, according to birth, had to fill. And so long as you didn't have too much social mobility, people would accept their given lot and support and work together in a, in a class or a caste of a community. I mean, that historically is where the great religions started. Confucius started to talk about how we need to treat others with behaviours that respect social structures that maintain social stability, how the Buddha came in, came in and challenged the underlying assumptions that underpin those class structures, and how in the Christian story, Jesus came along and started to tell, tell people they've got to love their neighbour as themselves. Mm. And those are where the great religions and the great philosophies of the world came. You know, Socrates did a very similar thing during this period, two to three thousand years ago, doing a very similar thing, challenging the assumptions that give us rights of power and authority and ownership in society by questioning them. So then what happened? Well, we became more and more fixed on this sense of, of an abstract idea of who I am, what I own, and objectifying the world around us, and defining self and other, and what I can do to gain status or hold my status within society. And essentially, that has escalated through social history over the last, you know, five to 10,000 years to the point at where it's kind of gone really fast with more and more communication and the patterns of, you know, of what's happened in, 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 in our culture, which has underpinned the way economics worked in the last 40 years has really stressed this when, for example, Margaret Thatcher stated very famously that there's no such thing as society, where self-interest became the given assumption that that is what you do. Everything must be qualified by what's in it for me rather than what's in it for us as being the driving force. And this has separated the broken up communities further it's broken up relationships people have invested in what they can achieve or acquire rather than investing in social capital or the relationships that would support their social and emotional needs as well as their 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 material needs in a traditional culture and that's got to a point where it's creating so much mental health problems we're all fixated about our sense of self, our identity, and worried about how other people see us and what, I, what we have to do in order to do what we're expected to do to live in this world, to improve ourselves, that it's, that it's, that it's driving us 
more and more away from the imp- recognizing the importance of building trust- trusting, understanding, loving, kindly, uh, emotionally supportive relationships. What we need to do now is come back to r- recognize the importance of these relationships. You know, all psychological studies, it is very well established that it's the quality of our relationships that are the most important factor in our well-being and life success. And yet, where is that, you know, we, don't, we, we build new housing estates, everyone's in a, in a box, mm-hmm. there's no communal space, there's mm-hmm. no pub, there's no civics, you know, there's no community hall, there's no mm-hmm. green, there's no way in which it, everyone's these isolated units, and they have mm-hmm. to get into this car and go to a supermarket. Sometimes the only social interaction people get is when they speak to the woman at the checkout yeah, or the absolutely. man at the checkout and the yeah. till. And, and that can be a negative experience as well. It can be, yeah. What I'm saying is when we apply this system of regulating ourselves that we need to do with mindfulness or whatever it is, we're actually artificially creating more of a state of ease that would have normally been produced by our sense of community and our sense of connection with others. And then... What I'm saying is we need to use this to rebuild connections, to rebuild trust, to rebuild relationships. So we're pretty clear how my mood affects your mood. My tone of voice affects your mood. Mm. And if you then you can regain a sense of agency or, or ability to do things by influencing that, by consciously regulating your emotions, by cons- consciously noticing your feelings and not getting caught up in this threat story of am I good enough or I don't like this person or this person shouldn't behave like that, to build conversations where we apply this noticing of our thought patterns to realize that our thought patterns are actually a product of our relationships of how we think about others and how we think others might be thinking about ourselves and that is the superpower of the human social brain that has led us to create everything that we have in technology this ability to imagine what is going on in someone else's mind ability to to, to understand things abstractly but here we've got to learn to use that skill to begin to be curious about other people and what's going on the second we switch to curiosity it's no longer about blame or threat it's like under it's developing a relationship of understanding so we're applying mindfulness in that relational context then you're acknowledging the power of mindfulness for self in a sort of regulatory noticing feelings but there's something with this word social mindfulness that is is more than that isn't it it is this community or doing mindfulness in relationship with others which which hasn't been so well established has it until recently that's right yeah i'm saying let's think of our own self our own mind our own emotional systems as a product of our of that is socially constructed or the way we've experienced life in society and when we regulate when we regulate our emotions when we become more aware of our thoughts and we become more open to experience let's realize that that is really giving us an opportunity to use those skills that we develop 
of becoming more aware of our feelings, to become more aware of other people's feelings, to become more aware of how our feelings affect others and how others' feelings affect ours, and how by by regulating our own feelings or paying attention to them, we don't get caught into in stories of blame or self-criticism. And then when we observe our thinking, we can start to think curiously about that's interesting. I met, jumped to that conclusion. Maybe I should ask a question and switch the agenda to curiosity mm-hmm. and asking questions mm-hmm. about what is going on to find out what is what that person thinks rather than jumping to conclusions. This is this is a way of a different way of building communities, isn't it? Yeah. It's 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 applying this tool specifically for the purpose of building trust and understanding in these conversations or relationships and learning to trigger these subtle things that make us feel open and interested in others rather than cutting ourselves off from our own feelings and cutting ourselves off from others. Then when we begin to understand how this works, we begin to see how we can become uh, a critical mass that can work together to support each other to change culture in a group or in an organization or a community and enable that group to come together to work together more for collective benefits to realize the importance of doing all of this for the what's in it for us that what's in it for me is entirely dependent on what we do which is motivated by what's in it for us to satisfy the collective need and when you make quite bold statements like you know fixing climate change, uh, changing culture in big organisations, it's starting with this level. that you, you, you genuinely have hope that this can actually shift consciousness in a huge way. Yeah, because this is where we've got to start. Otherwise, it's always going to be one opinion against another, one grab of power against another grab of power. It's, and it's going to be one grab of resources. It's like, I need my resource to protect myself. We need to get to a point where we, instead of having you know, uh, an electric DIY drill in every house, we need to have one person in the street has an electric DIY drill. We reduce the number of DIY drills by 50. So we reduce our footprint by 50. Or we need to build, you know, community-based projects that have tool sharing, tool Mm. libraries. We create a community around that. We create a job for somebody who maintains the tools, who lends them out, that makes sure that people bring them back in a fit state, etc, etc. That's community-based. But we need to start working together to achieve these things and we start to need to be able to consciously understand how we can work together rather than build conflict and competition which are habitually trained in us. So Mark, your, the programme you've developed, what intrigues me is it's incredibly black and white and it's not hippie, it's not woo-woo. It's in, it, you've deliberately created something very accessible, haven't you, for, some, for people who have either investigated mindfulness or not, have no idea what it even is. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, I, I think the demystification is really important people need to know this is just like baking a cake it just so happens that we're we're, we're using the right tools to understand how to manage our own minds and our own sense of self in order to in this case create 
communities that will enable us to survive the changes that we are facing right now, which is coming to agreements about reducing our footprint and sharing resources across communities and societies. I think we've got to start creating communities where if you've got something that you don't stockpile it, you've got Mm. to invest in sharing it. Now, that might mean things like, you know, um, a retired couple that have got a four-bedroom house, they rent out, a, a, you know, a floor of that house mm-hmm. very cheaply to a young couple with a family that then does some, you know, cooks meals and does the shopping for mm-hmm. the for for an elderly couple, mm-hmm. and the elderly couple then starts to build relationships with that young couple. They start to do the babysitting, you know, (laughs) and and we've got to start thinking about how do we use the resources that we have more efficiently to satisfy the needs of everybody in society rather than I need all of this wealth to protect me. Yes. So that to do that, we have to care about other people. We We have have to to actually care. Yep. And we have to build these. You know, when you ask people, do you care and would you help and you can do this to help? They're very generous. But that the moment the way it's structured is it's not my responsibility that's Mm. the state's responsibility and I can't help all if I do give a pound to this homeless character on the street well they're probably going to spend it on drugs anyway and they should be helped by this by the state so we've got to be able to learn to say well you know what is it you need and do this more as part of a culture as we move towards that I mean, there's no simple answer. Part of it is going to be that people realise, and they are realising, well, you know, there's a a lot of people that are quite, you know, have quite good incomes, and they say, you know, I want to pay more tax. But that's not not the narrative out there. It's like, oh, we're only going to get more votes if we tell people we're going to reduce tax. Mm. There's nothing wrong with tax. It's there to support people that need it. And... And investing in in society, in infrastructure, and society, and investing in systems. There's a failure of the the good-willed, educated, do, doing quite well, but you know, how shall I put it, pro-socially or socially motivated parts of society because they failed to realise that it's they still got to they got to share the champagne on the mm. sofa. The way in which, for example civil rights movement in the in in the US worked with uh, activist groups was you know the black panthers they went out and they f- gave soup to the people that were starving they gave medical care to the you know the the very poor sections of the black population in in the ghettos mm-hmm. and it's through building those networks of actually these people really mean what they say they built a powerful political movement and that and we don't get it by by thinking about it, imagining it and going, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if, well, you know, isn't it terrible that, uh, you know, this right-wing government is uh, not addressing all of these needs? We need to have a more socialist approach. It's not going to work. People have got to put their money where their mouth is. But when you start to create the opportunities for people to actually be caring, to actually share they love it. You know, people love it if you knock on the door and ask them for a bag of sugar. They love doing that. And the, and the power of the collective as well. So there's yep. this feeling of, oh, I can't do anything. Little me yep. can't do anything. And that's that's just not true. Um, but the power of more than one, you know, together as a tiny community can yep. make a huge impact. So we've got to consciously do this in groups to create change within 
communities, within groups, within or teams, within organisations, get a critical mass to create a culture change. Okay, so this is your this is your mission really is mm. to is to get these teachings in organisations in in communities. Yeah. If people are, if it has ignited a bit of interest in people, what do they? Where where can they go? How can they find out more about this? Is it is it available to anybody and everybody? What, how, tell me more about that. You briefly described the story of where I've got to in terms of making this scalable. Mm. So I have gone down a strategy which is making it formal, formally structured. Uh, ev- you know, evidence to support it in in a trial, getting that published, and getting it formally recognised by the mindfulness teaching, the mindfulness sort of standards bodies, mm-hmm. uh, and because this is how you get it scalable. There are thousands and thousands of trained mindfulness teachers, mm. and then when they get this, then they are in a position to start to adjust the way they teach to have this conscious impact. Okay, so you're ideally training mindfulness teachers or people who have awareness of that and want to share the word. Yep, yep. Okay. People can, they're welcome to buy my book online which from my website, which is mindfulnessconnected.com. Um, they're welcome to ask me about providing, uh, you know, programs, workshops, training programs mm. for communities, for organizations, for teams, for just groups of friends or mm. even random groups. But, you know, I don't, it, there's a hell of a lot of work yeah. in going out there, organizing, uh, bringing people together for one-offs. And yes. that's not an investment in time that uh, I'm prepared to do. But Absolutely. if other people want to do that and then come to me, then and I can probably find I can find lots of people that need training to uh, develop their skills to deliver this approach to scale it up. The exciting thing is that it looks like this is going to become a European-wide standard. So we've got the book translated into Italian. There's a French translation that is well underway. There's a there's someone's working on an Arabic translation. There's uh, another person that's looking at getting a Dutch publisher and a German publisher uh, and moves to promote this across Europe as a standard for, um, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, there are thousands of mindfulness teachers that have trained. So it can become a standard approach. It's, you know, a lot of this is about a story. How, yeah. What story we do we take? And we need more and more people to tell this story. Some of the really exciting develops are working with uh, black mindfulness teachers to adapt it as a EDI approach or, you know, include diversity and in- equality, diversity and inclusion, which is a really hot topic yes. where organisations are beginning to realise that they've got to be, you know, they've got to have more diversity in terms of, um, you know, people of colour, more diversity in terms of, you know, uh, men and women, um, neurodiversity, I hate the term, I I mean, I'm dyslexic, you know, I have skills that come from my dyslexia, which enables me to see the bigger picture, which has enabled me to break the mould of the clinical causal approach by seeing systems people with dyslexia are much better at seeing systems and understanding systems than we know we need all of these different abilities to create a group mind that's how we evolve different people bringing different skills 
and sharing them, their skills and strengths in a group and receiving the gifts and support of others in a group. And what I love about your approach is it's incredibly structured, but it has masses of flexibility, if that makes sense. Um, yep. So you've yep. got the ability to adapt to different groups, but you've got this very fixed evidence base. These are the six blocks we talk, you know, six yep. weekly blocks that you do. Yep. Um, and I think you've managed to um, play the game of finding the language of something that is millions, certainly thousands of years old when you look at other cultures of meditation. And you've, you've, made, you've made it accessible, but you've also, you could deliver this to any group, no matter, they don't have to have any spiritual understanding or awareness, any religious understanding. And I think that's, to me, that's broken a real um, pattern that's been a bit stuck with meditation. Yeah. It's been inaccessible to a huge amount of people. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's been a real uh, motive is to make it accessible to every different set of uh, beliefs from mm. humanistic beliefs to religious beliefs. I mean, when I taught the program for hospital staff, you can imagine that staff are quite, you know, different, uh, uh, you know, diverse ethnically um, mm. and cultural backgrounds. And there were, you know, at least a couple of, uh, black African Christians and uh, at least a couple of of uh, you know Asian Muslims mm. and I think even an Asian Hindu that they would just said like you know we really like this because you're telling us you're explaining what we teach in our communities whereas they've never been taught that as a secular process I mean one of the big deals here I mean it's something the Dalai Lama talks about is what we need is a secular rationale for ethics. This is it. It's explainable in scientific terms. A lot of these are interdisciplinary approaches, some of which, you know, some of the most interesting stuff comes out of work on Rolfing, for example, understanding how this subtle films of connective tissue work mm. to hold bits of the body together. And they're, they're like the internal eyes. And we've, nobody even knew about these things until 15 years ago when, when people interested in understanding how some of these alternative approaches actually worked physiologically. Yeah. They were just ignored. If you dissected yeah. a body, they were just yeah. ignored. Yeah, because yeah. they were thin and irrelevant, yeah. seemingly. Yeah, and it and it and it's there's a really good basis for believing that these transparent, thin layers of of you know connective tissue are where the embodied mind sits. Mm, wow! In this you know incredibly complex sets of nervous mm. tissues that mm. are going on you know in the body. You know, that's, that's one of the major systems. The other major systems is the, you know, vagal system that mm. is regulating the heart and the lungs and the mm. gut. Uh, another huge system. These two systems seem to be the embodied consciousness of the human mind. This was my question, which is sort of related. You, you told me in a, in a chat previously that you visited a Sufi teacher yeah. and actually managed to talk to them about social mindfulness. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been working with this uh, um, Moroccan uh, clinical psychologist from Morocco, uh, 
And she'd come to the point where she realized that there was it wasn't working looking at all of this from an individual basis. And we've been, you know, had the odd conversation over the last five or six years on LinkedIn. And then when I got this recognition of the uh, of of this program, formal recognition, I said, do you want to be part of this? And she jumped at the opportunity and um, she started working on the French translation. She's been working with a large corporate talking about this in Africa uh, across different countries in Africa. I mean, starting with looking at sexual violence, how do we deal with this problem? And then, and then later she started to explain that she was a Sufi and she had a Sufi teacher in Istanbul. And she, this Sufi teacher is a woman unusually and widely regarded as the head of the lineage set up by Rumi, the most famous Sufi mm. poet of, uh, in history. Mm. Uh, you know, these groups are very small, low-key things. They go on in, in in Turkish society and, you know, lots of uh, Muslim societies. They're quite undercover, a lot mm. of them. They've, you know, a history of being sometimes uh, elevated to important levels in society, sometimes repressed. Mm. Um, and so, you know, her teacher is very interested in how to bring spirituality to society to bring about, you know, to help us deal with the kind of changes that we're facing to create a more just, fair, um, you know, have to have social impact. And so I was invited to go and stay three days with that community and talk to the teacher and talk to um um, the, the Moroccan clinical psychologists, um, uh, brothers and sisters in that community. You know, a lot of these people are quite influential, mm. you know, people. That's all very low-key. I mean, you know, but, 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 but what's exciting is there you see how the real training works. Mm. And the real training is in service, in humility, in kindness, mm. in patience, in those qualities working in community you know the the person serving us at, at meals as a prof, you know a lecturer in archi architecture at the university mm. and she's you know the most i mean you know i turned it into a game <laughs> but but you know this is and that made that and you know we had fun <laughs> playing with these you know i'm being really generous to you letting you treat me like royalty because i don't like this <laughs> but i have to accept i have to be generous enough to accept your your need to serve me <laughs> it's so, so alien isn't it in our yeah, culture this sort of yeah. way of yeah yeah how amazing and the ritual is really the group coming together Mm. To, you know, in prayer, in chanting, in meditation, in whirling, dancing, in playing music as a sort of ritual where they all let go of their separate sense of self and mm. feel the experience of an extended loving presence that they feel when they when they can relax in community in a loving space. And, and that's, identity doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It doesn't it's exist. Gone. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. And that's what the, and that's what traditional culture does with ritual, yeah. and we've lost those in our society. That we constantly need to renew our sense of connection and let go of our differences in any community. You've been listening to East Meds West. 
subscribe to be notified about future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Submit comments and questions via Twitter at Cycles of Change or email chat at drcarolynedelston.com.